Good morning, Greenwood Presbyterian Church. If you haven't taken a moment to let it sink in, do. Look around at the festivity, the gathering, the families, the tailgating nature of what we're doing. We have everything but the food to have a festive occasion together. Um, I have the best view of this. We have the best view of this up here. It is a beautiful thing to see the church family gathered. And I know that the sun is bright. It's in your eyes. It may be getting hot, but I will promise you I will work swiftly and quickly as we communicate God's word and what we think is a beautiful truth for us to sing about this morning. Let me remind you or tell you if you're joining us for the first time that we have for several weeks been doing a series on the hymns of the church, trying to highlight not the tunes, though the tunes are great, but the gospel truths within the hymns that make them worth singing and that make them worth remembering as you live your life in your six days of labor. And so this morning I'm very excited about this sermon. I fear that I will not do justice to the subject but I'm excited about this morning's sermon and I've been excited all week because this morning I get to talk about two things that I love. First, I get to talk about food. And I love food. And the Bible is filled with the theme of food if you haven't considered that before. From Genesis to Revelation, there's forbidden fruit. There's grain, there's grapes, olives, figs, pomegranates, milk and honey, raisin cakes, unblemished lambs and fattened calves, and of course, bread and wine. And the Bible's filled with stories of food and preparation of food and enjoying food, and I love food. So I'm excited to talk to you this morning about food. The second thing I get to reference I love also, and that is weddings. And I love weddings because at weddings you will find food. But weddings are a beautiful thing, a gift of God, the image of his relationship, his covenant relationship with his people. And there is something right about food and weddings going together. And we didn't come up with that idea. God did. God made food to be a way of celebrating together. And he made music to be a way of celebrating together. And after we look at God's word this morning, you're going to feel like I felt all week. And that is that we need to feast. We need to eat. We need to have the Lord's Supper. We need to break bread together. And we're getting to the point that I think we can do that, hopefully someday soon. But for now, this will be a verbal appetizer of what God's word and what his feast are intended to be for us. So give your attention to the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 19, verses 5 through 9. This is the revelation of John, given to John by the Lord himself for the good of the church to tell us about a day that is coming that you and I are supposed to be longing for and waiting for with great patience. Listen to the word of God. 
Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray that God might open our eyes to see this beautiful truth and then to sing about it. Let's pray. Lord, we are a busy and a tired people, but what we need most is to be reminded of what is eternally true. As we live our busy lives, would you slow us down enough to see this truth this morning? And would you make us long for it? We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about 15 years ago, and my best friend at the time was the campus minister at Penn State University. And I remember he called me one afternoon, and it was one of those times that somebody just kind of needs to talk. But he called me and he said, Paul, Paul, I've been thinking about something. I need somebody to talk to about it. I said, well, what is it? He said, I realize that though a minister, I don't think about heaven very much. And my immediate, typical Paul Patrick response was, huh, well, that's silly. You ought to think about heaven more often. That's what I thought. But after reflecting on it for a few seconds, I realized, you know what? I don't think about heaven very much. Sure, we talk about heaven. We sing about heaven. It's in and around everything we do in ministry. But to really dwell on the beauty and the truth of what God has said is coming for his people is something that probably none of us do very much. And I think there are reasons for that. I think busyness keeps us from dwelling on that truth. And I think comfort in this life can keep us from dwelling on this truth. I had lunch with a few Erskine students this week who came to visit me. I shared with them uh, over a meal how I intended to talk to you about feasting and about heaven and how we don't think about it very much. And one of those students very quickly told me a story that I'll tell you. She said, you know, the person that I've been around that has thought about heaven the most and talked about it the most was a camper at Camp Joy. Camp Joy is a special needs camp in North Carolina where several of our students have worked. And I said, really, a Camp Joy person? And she said, yes, he had a mild head injury or a mild uh, brain deficiency, but did not have the use of any of their limbs. And he talked all the time 
about how there would be a day coming where he would be able to run, he would be able to leap, and he would be able to do what he saw everybody else doing. And maybe you and I don't dwell on heaven and the truth of what God has said in his word will be true for us, that all things will be made new, all things will be made right, all things will be as they should, maybe because we're so comfortable and so blessed. So consider that as we apply what we're going to hear this morning. Is our comfort keeping us from longing an ultimate comfort? Have we settled from, for small comforts that have distracted us from the larger theme and story that God has said will be true for us? I have a few brief points for us this morning. And the first is the intro, the idea I just have, which is simply this. Could we for a few minutes think about heaven? Could we for a few minutes consider together what God has said is true, it will be true, it will be eternally true for those whose faith is in Christ? Let's hear about it from Scripture, and could we long for it together even when we sing about it in a few moments? My first point is simply this. There is a day that is coming. There is a feast that is coming. And oh, what a day and oh, what a feast it is going to be. That's not my language. That's not my image. That's what God has given us in his word. What he calls the great wedding feast of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a sacrifice for many, who had placed upon him the sins of the whole world. The wedding feast of the Lamb, that's the language of Scripture. Now, your experience with weddings, my experience with weddings so far in this life are only shadows of the real substance. I've been privileged to do a lot of weddings in my years when I was a campus minister, and I can tell you about wonderfully planned weddings that didn't go according to plan. Wedding receptions that were so hot that no one could enjoy the food. Wedding receptions that were rained out, the saddest reception I was a part of, Right as we began, the skies opened up and all of the food, all of the food drenched in a heavy downpour and in a thunderstorm. Some of you, during the COVID season, we've had some weddings and we have weddings that are coming soon. This is a peculiar time. Things aren't going according to plan. And that's how it is in this life. You need to understand that everything in a wedding and in a feast in this life is but a shadowy type of the real substance that one day will be ours. And so when things don't go according to plan, that's a good thing to remind each other. It's a good thing to remind our brides or our daughters that things will not go according to plan, but one day they will, exactly as they should. Our earthly experience with feasts and with weddings are but a shadow of the actual substance. In Revelation chapter 19, those verses we read, 
They give us the substance. Where God says, write these words down. They are trustworthy and true. This will be the future of my church. This will be the future of my people. And you can bank on it, he essentially says. Have you been moved by that truth? Have you ever been offered something that didn't have a contingency plan attached? God is saying this will be true for you and it is the most beautiful truth that could be offered to a people. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Let me warn you, my quotes this week are longer than usual, but they're better than usual. So give your attention to what Charles Spurgeon would say about this beautiful truth. He said this in, the, in 1887 about the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, and there will come such a day for all whom Christ has redeemed, for all who trust him and who rest in his atoning sacrifice. And that day will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. That feast will be, like most other marriage suppers, the fulfillment of long expectation. For our Lord has waited long for his bride, the perfected church. Oh, beloved, you do not know the longings of, of the heart of Christ for that day of glory. For this he lived, for this he died, for this he continually pleads until that blessed day comes. And that day is fast coming. And when it arrives, then will be the great wedding feast. That marriage feast will be the grandest display of Christ's magnificent generosity in the form of a banquet. If people ever make a little more show than on other occasions, it's usually at a marriage feast. And oh, what a show Christ will make on that day. Count on this. There will be no little show when he comes in the glory of the Father and gathers us at his feast. Do you hear that? Charles Spurgeon captures beautifully a father, the image of a father who has all the wealth of the nations and who has a beloved daughter and says, I am going to throw the biggest wedding and wedding reception that the world has ever seen and could ever know because that bride is my church. So says the Lord. And it's beautiful, and Spurgeon captures it beautifully. And it is something you should long for. It is something that should lift your heart regardless of what bad news you have received or what bad circumstances you are living in and living through. Whatever those miseries are in this life, God has said the outcome is sure and it is beautiful and it is a feast, and it is a banquet. And that is a beautiful thing worth singing about. My second point is a biblical theology of feasting. And I know that may sound boring, but let me say this. There is a wonderful little series of articles that you can find on the Gospel Coalition, if you're familiar with that website, written by Rory Schreiner. Four articles about the return to biblical feasting. I found those to be very valuable 
uh, this week, and I'm going to share a few of those points and some of that substance with you. But a, a feast, if it's a biblical feast, has at least these four characteristics. Number one, an abundance of choice food and drink. An abundance of choice food and drink. It's not the usual staple items that you're used to, but extraordinary, sumptuous delicacies. That's the imagery of the great wedding banquet of the Lamb, and that is the expectation that we are to have. Now, I don't know what your feasts are like in your home, but for many people, Thanksgiving and Christmas are, are the closest thing to a feast that we can recognize. It's only in my family growing up, it was only on those occasions that we would have turkey and dressing and casseroles. We never had casseroles, except for on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And those things were sumptuous. They were good. They were unique for us. And you probably have similar occasions. Food, special food that is fixed to special dates, holidays, calendared items, celebrations. And so it is with a feast. A feast should be unique, distinct, specially good. The second truth of a biblical feast is this. There should be an abundance of people and not the usual people. Unusual people. Unusual in several senses of the word. Do you know that in Luke chapter 14 verse 13, that Jesus tells his disciples, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And in verse 12, right before that, he says, don't invite your family. Don't invite the usual people. But when God throws a feast, he invites those who normally aren't invited to anything those who aren't at the top of the invitation list of everybody else, those who can't bring anything to the feast except for to limp there or to be led there because of their lameness and their blindness. And so you see there's a special beauty to the feast of God. He doesn't throw it for the wealthy or for the familiar. He throws it to those who had nowhere else to turn. That's a biblical feast. And then thirdly, there has to be an occasion of celebration. It's just not eating for the sake of eating. It's eating for the reason of celebrating and naming God as the giver of your gifts, unashamedly celebrating that he and his bounty are what have made life good for you. That's a biblical feast. And then fourthly, there has to be a generous host. There has to be a generous host, a provider of the party, who out of his own bounty and at his own cost seeks to be a blessing to all to feed, to nourish, to provide and care for even the least of these. Those are the four minimal categories of a biblical banquet. 
I told you of the four articles by Rory Schreiner in the Gospel Coalition. Let me read a quotation from there that captures this imagery well. He says, Feasting is not first about food. It is foremost about Godward celebration on some specific occasion together with others. Good food, good drink, in abundance, and to accentuate our enjoyment of God and His kindness towards us. The heart of feasting is not the food itself, but the heart of the feasters. For Christians, feasting is not mere indulgence. There is nothing particularly Christian about eating more than usual. What makes feasting a means of grace for nourishing souls is explicitly celebrating Christ together in worship and in faith. This makes feasting in Christ more spiritual than it is physical. Amen? Boy, this feasting thing sounds great to me. Right about now, we should be working on your appetite a little bit, right? It is a good thing to come together and to enjoy people and to enjoy food. A great story that I saw this week that I was reminded of and, and watched and read about was the 1987 movie Babette's Feast. Some of you maybe have seen Babette's Feast. If you have, you know that it's with subtitles. It's a Danish movie with subtitles. It's a little bit hard to watch, but a beautiful story. Let me tell you the story of Babette's Feast or remind you of the story of Babette's Feast. Babette, in the 1800s, was a refugee from Paris. She found her way into an 18th century Denmark community, a community in Denmark, where she worked for a small religious church, a religious community that was only about 12 people. It was a rigid community. It was a cold community. It was an old and dying community that was a hundred-year-old church. And she found her way into that community as a refugee, as a housekeeper, and as a cook. And she couldn't be paid. They said, we don't have anything to pay you. She said, I'll work for free. And for 14 years, she served as their housekeeper to this small community of 12 and as a cook. And their food, that they, all that they wanted was their continued staple items of bread with water poured on it to make a bland soup, of porridge. And so Babette would make these meals all day, every day for 14 years. After 14 years, she learned that a friend back in Paris had every year purchased a lottery ticket for Babette. And finally, on the 14th year, Babette received news from her friend that she had won the lottery. She had won 10,000 francs. And the community was sad but realized that this means she would now leave and she would go back to Paris. But on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of that church and its community, Babette announced that she wanted to throw 
a feast. A feast for these people who had no appetite for food. They reluctantly agreed, seeing it as a farewell party for Babette. We'll let her cook. And then they committed, this is interesting, they committed to not discuss the meal as they ate it and to not enjoy it because they felt it might be sinful to enjoy the kind of food that Babette spoke of making. So they agreed, and Babette has food brought in from Paris. She sends her nephew to bring in luxurious food. And as that luxurious food was brought into this community, it was then that they said, I don't think we should be eating this. This looks too delicious. This looks too good for us. And Babette, the second half of the whole movie, is Babette's preparations. Her preparations of a seven-course meal that included this. Turtle soup, buckwheat pancakes with caviar and sour cream, champagne, quail in puff pastry, foie gras, whatever that is, and truffle sauce, endive salad paired with pinot noir, rum-soaked sponge cake with figs and with cherries, cheese and fruit and cognac. And it was an absolute explosion of color, of flavor, of excess, and of abundance. And as the film shows that stoic community eating these luxurious foods, something happens. They can't help but start to talk about what they're eating. They start to break out one by one with smiles and with laughter, with conversation. They begin to reconcile broken relationships and animosity and ask for forgiveness of sins against one another. And by the end of the movie, the room is transformed from stoic coldness to joy and laughter and happiness and community. And at the close of the movie, two important things happen. The community is pictured around the well of the town holding hands and singing a hymn together. And the two sisters who were closest to Babette went and found her cleaning up after the banquet by herself, still working in the kitchen as everyone else had been celebrating. And they said, Babette, this, this was wonderful. We will miss you so much as you go back to Paris. And it's then that she reveals to them, I'm not going back to Paris. And they say, you're not going back to Paris. She says, I have no money to go to Paris. Everything that I had, I spent on our feast. And I'm glad to have done it. And if ever there was an image of Christ in a movie who had given everything to bring a community together in song, to put joy and laughter in their hearts, to bind them together as one, and to have spent all for the sake of their feast. If ever there's been an image outside of Scripture that reveals that, Babette's feast is one to consider. It's a beautiful story because it's the story of Scripture. It's the story of what God has done for us. 
It's what he's done for his church. And this morning, as we close, I want you to feel the sense of beauty and urgency that is associated with this feast. I want you to see the beauty. I want you to feel the hunger, to have the longing for all things to be made right. But I also want you to hear Scripture's urgency about this feast. Jesus tells a parable elsewhere about a feast, a wedding feast. And by the end, you find that there are some who do not get in. There are some who have no access to the feast. And the image is very much like this. Picture someone with their arms crossed standing outside of the feast, refusing to go in, refusing to eat what is freely given in all of its bounty and all of its wonder. But they're refusing to go in, wondering if maybe there's a better invitation out there that could come. Is there a better invitation than this one? I'll just, I'll stand outside of the feast and watch and not enter in. And the scriptures warn us that the ones with their arms crossed, refusing to go in, they are the ones who will weep and will mourn and will starve because they refuse to come in by faith and eat at the banquet that costs no money, but it's fully and freely given to those who come to Christ by faith. I'm going to close with a prayer and with the words from later in Revelation, chapter 21. And then we're going to sing this beautiful hymn about all these truths we've heard about. But let's pray together. We'll be led by these words from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes, even now as we sing the truth of this beauty and the beauty of this truth. 
Lord, would you give us a longing for the hope of heaven that doesn't just last a moment, but that goes with us into our week, regardless of the circumstances we are living through. Lord, would you remind us in song that we will feast. We will weep no more. Our mourning will be turned to dancing. Our joy will be lifted up in song. So, Lord, bless us, we pray, in the singing of our song. In Jesus' name, amen.